Welcome to Significance Breed Success. I'm Daniel Peter, your host. Today we're here with Emmett Meta, who is a rock star. He's based out of San Antonio, Texas. He's a venture capitalist. He is a physician. He's an investor. Um, you're a founder. Uh, you're into real estate. Uh, you know, I mean, you just love business, right? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming. On. Thanks for coming on today. I know it's crazy, and you're, you're probably running around with your head cut off. Let me ask you, what 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 got you into? Obviously, there's I find that a lot of physicians don't do, they're not business people usually. How do you connect the ability to be a physician and in the venture capital, you know, investor world? You know, I think a lot of it is stems from sort of mindset of folks who are STEM science driven and like to tinker. You know, I had a, I went into medicine just because I had a very sort of met, uh, engineering kind of brain like to tinker with stuff when I was a kid. And then I went that route. And as I got further into training, I realized that the healthcare system was broken. Lots and lots of problems from delivery of care, paying for care, access to care. And as all those things went through, I kind of figured out that one of the biggest ways I could make an impact was as an investor. So do you find, like, I find that the healthcare is called healthcare, but it's really like a sick care. And the healthcare is you know, more the preventive side of it. I mean, insurance, they say it's health insurance, but it's really, I mean, it creates health, hopefully, but it's really when we get sick. Um, what, where do you think in the next 10 years are going to bring us in this space? Because I love this space, and some of my friends are, are doctors, and they're into the prevention medicine. They're into energy. They're into new um, ways to be able to bring health to people, whether eating um, you know, some of the stuff that's coming out in, in nutrition and science and everything else is adding a lot of value to us. Where, where do you see this going? Yeah, so one of the key problems that I see in the healthcare is exactly what you said, is that it's more sick care. And so the system pays to take care of folks who are sick. It doesn't pay in order to prevent sickness. Uh, but in order to basically balance this system that we have from an economic perspective as well as a population perspective, we're going to have to prevent disease. So on the investment side, one of our core theses at our venture fund is healthcare and healthcare IT. So I get to see a lot of what is coming in the next 10 years, a lot of technology, a lot of applications that people are working on that are going to fix this problem. And that is a, a significant focus of a lot of the tech that you're going to see in successful companies in healthcare in the next three to five years. So I've heard this concept of, and I love what you're doing. It's a uh, builders.vc, right? Is your website. Yep, I love what you're, what you're doing here. It says we help founders modernize. Um, uh, you know, you guys are really adding that value to the healthcare industry. And, and I'm guessing you're looking at what was versus what going to be in building those new tech platforms, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we're deeply involved in assessing and investing in companies that are changing uh, this antiquated industry. Our particular thesis is around using technology to fix those things. And to me, that is sort of the, the biggest change in evolution in healthcare is the application of technology to such a huge um, drain on GDP. So tech can make an industry like healthcare very efficient, both from, from all of the different facets that go into healthcare, which is patients, providers, payers, uh, you know, developers of treatment, whether it's drug or medical device, everybody can become more efficient with technology. 
and we can reach out to more people and take care of more people efficiently if we have good tech. So I heard from uh, another investor this last week, he said they knew they have now like this AI uh, operating machines that can, um, once you get an MRI done or, um, you know, a scan of your body, whether an x-ray or whatever it is, they have machines now that can tell you what's wrong better than the best doctors. Is, is, is something like that coming or something like that existing? I, that's so I, I'm an interventional radiologist. That's the kind of doctor I am. So I actually read MRI, CT, x-rays and do minimally invasive surgery. So I can tell you, this is a very controversial subject. And I'll tell you from, from the people on the ground as one of the guys who both develops that technology, um, the chief medical officer for an artificial intelligence company, an investor into those technologies and a consumer user of that technology, that's not what's going to happen. The, the best example I like to give is when calculators came out in the 650s and 60s, people said accountants are going to be wiped out because calculators will fix everything. It, this is the same. We're going to use AI and machine learning as an adjunct to what we do, and it's going to make us better as physicians. There's still a human element to this that cannot be replicated in 2020 by a computer. Now, this I'm not talking about a computer is better at finding or detecting a abnormality. So if there's a spot on an MRI, you can train a computer all day long to be better than a human to find that spot. But then understanding what that spot is in the context of what's wrong with that patient is not uh, feasible right now with AI ML. So I love that from you. I appreciate that because I hear things and I want to know the truth. Um, obviously, you know, people tell me things all the time and I'm like, okay, it's kind of, crazy. You know, my brother's a psychiatrist, uh, so he works with the mind a lot, and there's nothing like this coming out in his space from what I've seen um, to be able to help the mind necessarily. Like da Dr. Daniel Amen maybe has created some really cool things on um, doing some scans of the brain, um, but I don't find that they can, f that they have been able to create a platform, a computer or a system yet to be able to say when they go underneath it, the computer goes, ding, just give them this you know, vitamin C or give them this prescription and all the brain problems are done. Um, no, yeah. So what we're using this technology right now, for, I'll give you a good example of where this, where AI machine learning is really good and it's, it's something that we both invest in and use as consumers is if you have a stroke, so you have a bleed in your brain, which is called a hemorrhagic stroke, and you're brought into the emergency room, right now what happens is you get a CAT scan of your head. That CAT scan gets put into a queue of CAT scans that are to be read by the radiologist. Now, CAT scan number one, two, three, four, five may be patients with headaches and normal, but have the same symptoms as the headache of the stroke. But what you'd like to do is have the one with the stroke read quicker and faster so that that patient can get treatment, while the normal who has just a headache would be put further down the list. There's tech now that the AIML will read the scan ahead of time, will pick up that there's a bleed and then tell the radiologist, put this one to the top of your list, read this one next. Because this patient, if we read faster, will provide better care. And that kind of algorithm is here in 2020, it's coming and it's something that we do use. So I love that because if somebody walks into a hospital 10 or 20 years ago, it takes forever to get them potentially the results or the specifics and now you guys can make sure they get the care faster and healed. Um, where is it going in the next 10 or 20 years? Are, are we going to be able to 
you know, I've heard these things called micro nanobots. So we could potentially pop them in our system and they tell us if we're going to get sick or they um, fix some problems, you know, whether, you know, the blood clot or like, where is the tech going and where do you think it's going to be in, let's say by 2040? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's difficult to predict that kind of thing because if you look at um, medicine even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the, the revolutionary pace we're going at with, you know, with internet, tech, nanobot, all these kinds of emerging technologies, it, it goes faster and slower than you think it does. So it's, you see amazing things, you know, you watch Minority Report or Star Trek, those kinds of things, everything looks really cool. Getting that stuff to market is a little more difficult. Um, so it, it, there is revolutionary technology coming out. There's no question. You know, if you look, it, it's difficult when we sit here today and we're in the life we're in, in the, you know, the, the years we've lived. But if you look back a few generations, you know, there wasn't even basic technology 20 years ago that now we take for granted. I mean, you come in, you could get an MRI in the ER now, even 10 years ago, that was difficult. So there, the leaps and bounds that happen, especially in healthcare, is is incredible and we, we're looking at almost a doubling of medical knowledge every eight years so that's how much new information that we're digesting in medicine on a year on a you know decade to decade basis i love this space i'm glad you're doing a lot of work because it's it's really going to add a lot of value to people's um quality of life uh you're in the for your vc firm it looks like you guys are in the real estate uh, world too. What do you guys spend most of your time with in real estate? Is it residential, commercial? Is it just the tech side of it, or do you actually buy 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 uh, brick and mortar? No, it's fully on the tech side. So as a fund, we're investing in startup entrepreneurs who are revolutionizing industry with tech. So our thesis and our focus is on uh, taking that as an antiquated industry, which is paper and Excel, and putting it. Uh, techifying it. So our focus is on those companies. We're not buying hard assets or debt kind of stru equity structures. I love it. So I just looked at your five companies and what you guys are doing on your site with the uh, 3D design. Um, I love the project manager and superintendents. So can you explain maybe one of these companies on here? Because a lot of people might look at it like, hey, I buy real estate at this point. Um, I think that's the norm, right? Not as many people maybe in, involve themselves with the real estate tech side of it. So what are you finding in the real estate market? And what's really making a huge impact? Is it, is it making the, like your company right here, uh, 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 wire, field wire? Um, with yeah. with uh, helping con construction foremen, project managers, superintendents to collaborate while they're on the field. I'm guessing the flow of the job gets to go a little bit faster based upon there's a system uh, or a framework, right? Correct. Yeah. So most of our, our investments are in, like we said, we talk about taking what's an antiquated industry. So people using paper and Excel and then making it tech enabled. So, I mean, a good example of a company in our portfolio is Bowery. They're a, a company out of New York. It's in the appraisal side of real estate. So, I, I mean, I don't know how much real estate you guys have done, but typically if you buy a house, for example, you are getting a loan. You have to get an appraisal done by a third party. An appraiser comes in, and an appraiser is a licensed professional, but they make an assessment of what that property is worth, and they provide to the bank so the bank 
understands whether there's value in the amount they're going to give you your loan. The process of doing an appraisal is fairly organic. I mean, they take comparables from around the area. They do a cost approach of what they think it would cost to build. But there's very little data that goes into deciding what that number is. It's more around what is occurring in that area, what, what that appraiser as an expert feels. Now, if you extrapolate this to the commercial side, take a 50-story building in downtown New York. It's pretty tough to come up with an appraisal that just based on doing comps and you have to be basically a construction expert to do a replacement by cost appraisal. These guys have taken um, a lot of data and uh, put that all together so that they can use data as an appraisal firm in real time. So they take all of the inputs that go, including the construction, but the rents, the, the leases, the, the reconstruction costs, what the banks have done, um, all of that goes into uh, deciding what the value of that is. And then they can reuse that data as well as have a network effect of having more data. So when they get the building next door and all the data with there in that building, they can then go back and, and do appraisals on, this, on, the, on the, the subject property. In some of these areas, banks, customers um, require appraisals on an ongoing basis every year. As a, If you're a private lender or if you're a mortgage originator, you need that kind of stuff on an ongoing basis. So they're able to provide that much quicker. Right now, sometimes it takes these appraisals 30, 60, 90 days uh, to get that information. That's amazing. Um... So Amit, we have uh, online schools uh, and then we're, we're developing online school, but we also have brick and mortars and it's challenging sometimes to understand all the pieces. If we have to get a contractor here and an architect here and all those, so I can see the flow making it so much simpler to understand the, you know, the tech side of it. We don't have a tech piece like that. Like I'll, I'll look at what you guys have to offer because we want something in multiple locations. We have we're adding three more this year. We're buying six more next year. So it's interesting on how we can grow faster and make sure we have a, a, a track and a framework. So, um, okay, I found another one. This one sticks out to me. Memphis Meats. Um, it says that you're developing meat produced directly from animal cells without the need to raise or slaughter actual animals. That's awesome. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at... I know you guys are, uh, you're a, an athlete, and so yep. um, food is an essential fuel, right? Yep. And they're in the alternative, what I call alternative meat space, which I'm a vegan, actually, so I eat a lot of this stuff of plant-based meats, soy-based meats, TVP, um, those kinds of things that, you know, uh, just because we enjoy eating that stuff. Um, this is a company that's doing it a little differently, which is cell-based meat, so most of the meat, alternative meats you look now, Impossible, Beyond, etc., have, um, it's a plant-based product, and so they're genetically understanding a construct of plants to put together a formula to have meat replicated. These, Memphis's Meats is actually a world leader in what's called cell-based meat, which is a little different, right? They're actually taking uh, meat from the cellular level and growing it in a lab. So just one of the ways of all of these companies are aiming towards preserving the environment by providing a, a, a less uh, taxing way. I mean, meat is really taxing on the environment, both from water and energy and, and animals and antibiotics and all of that goes into it. So 
this is uh, an, an alternative way of getting plant or uh, alternative-based meats. So I love the Beyond Meats and the stuff they've created. It's really amazing and it tastes really good. Do you find that, and I'm reading this, and, and their goal at, at your company, memphismeats.com, is to feed 10 billion people by 2050. And I've seen, uh, I think it was Bill Gates or a couple other people, um, Richard Branson maybe, they were really looking at this model of, of making meat in, in, and making it so we don't have to slaughter animals because it does, it's very taxing. Um, where's the future of this? Is it, you know, the, the, the vegan vegetarian side, obviously it's growing. And then do you find this will really be a substitute in the next, you know, 20, 30 years? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you talk about vegetarian, vegan, it's very controversial. People who love meat or get very defensive and the, the vegans are, some of them are crazy. So it goes both ways, right? Um, I think if you take a step back and look at diet from a, from a medical standpoint, so there's a medical standpoint, an ethical standpoint, and then just a feasibility standpoint. Uh, from a medical standpoint, there's conflict. There's been conflicting data, but I think most um, physicians would agree that a plant-based diet, you know, whether you can do it or not, is a different argument. But just from a pure fuel into the body perspective, is a cleaner and, and healthier diet. I mean, you can reverse atherosclerotic disease, uh, you can reverse, you know, coronary disease, strokes, all of that kind of stuff, hypertension, and that's been shown over and over again. There's a large, large study called the China study was a study conducted out of Cornell, two PhDs in nutrition, uh, spent, I think, 30 or 40 years in multiple locations in China with various types of diet, and they looked at uh, oncologic cancer risk and lots of other things. So I, I would implore people who have interest in this, if you can get past the sensationalism of, you know, I'm going to defend my meat eating or I'm going to defend my veganism, it's got true science behind it and shows that um, a plant-based diet is a lot healthier. So that from the from the medical from the from the human side of it, it's definitely better for your body. The from the um, environmental perspective, just the amount of energy, whether it's water, feed, antibiotics, all of that that goes into one animal, and then what that one animal can feed versus if you took that energy and put it into a crop and how much you can produce and how many people that can feed, that's an argument also for for the environmentalists out there. Whether or not um, the, the alternative meat structure, you know, the, the creation of this alternative meat structure is to try to move people away from an environmental perspective from eating meat, not because of the, of the ethical reason of eating meat, it's because of the environmental reason. So any one of these potential alternatives gives you that outcome. And that's what the genesis of the focus of these companies are. It's not to get into the ethical slash health slash all these other things. Now, those are side byproducts of doing it but that's not where the focus is i love it and i, I this thing I like I, I don't know if you watched the jetsons when we were kids did you ever watch that tv show <laughs> yeah so you walk over to your fridge you push a button and the food pops out and i look at this in the future that you know what was on our tv 20 30 years ago star trek and you know we had the pop we had the um we had the iPods, we had the uh, iPads, we had the eyes, you know, back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, conceptually with, with Star Trek. I love that we're creating tech that's um, making it simple, but also making it better for this world. Um, what yeah, that's what this is. Yeah, you know. I love it. I, so, so tell me, 
why are you so passionate about um, adding value to this world? Because obviously you're an investor, but and you're a physician. So do you get really the the purpose from you know healing people with your you know with your physician side, and then you're like, hey, you know what? I can really do so much more by creating businesses around the world that um, you know shift the world. Like how did like where did it come? Was it from a father, a mentor, uh, somebody in your life? Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of it has come from frustration. So going through the, the things that I've gone through, not, not from a, I don't mean from a perspective of hardship. I mean, you know, start training and going through training and seeing people who are sick and saying, okay, I'm going to try to help them. And then getting frustrated that the tools don't exist or that the way the world or the way the structure is set up is against us making a difference when we can make a difference. And so that the trip or the, the, the path that I've taken through each of those steps that I've gone to and has gone and then moved into these other disciplines. So from medicine into investing, into um, tech, into all of these things, it was always a springboard of seeing something that was broken and saying, I can try to fix it, hopefully better, but at least let me try to fix it. And when you talk about a mentor and that, it wasn't specifically a mentor for me, but I have two small kids and I try to impart that on them. And I've sort of learned trying to focus them and having them is that there is a component of it that's innate, that there are those who are inquisitive and, cur and cur have curiosity. And then there's those who don't, and, th and that's okay. But there is an element of, of imparting that and teaching that. And, and I've sat down and tried to look back where did that influence come from? And to an extent, it was my parents. I mean, they were very ingenuitive and they were doing things like that. But a lot of it is just from exposure to experiences that frustrated me and then having a, a personality that said, I'm going to try to fix it. I love that. That's, that's where I got into education too. Um, okay, a few more minutes if that's good. Uh, love what you're doing with FSM. Um, How'd you get into basketball? I love basketball. I play basketball. I whoop Jake at basketball. I won't replay him because he's tough. And I, I you know, I, I beat him on a bad day. But like, I love the sport at this point. You know, I used to, I used to be an MMA fighter and pro wrestler, but basketball is so, uh, so much fun. Did you play when you were a kid? Uh, how'd you get into representing athletes? And being a part of it? Yeah, there's actually a funny story in that. I, I have very little sports uh, knowledge. I grew up in Canada. And I grew up at a time when there weren't a lot of sports. Um, hockey had gone on a strike, and basically we had the CFL. Uh, so I, I don't have a deep sports background, and I think I was studying a lot, trying to become a doctor instead of watching sports. But when I got to the U.S., when I moved here, sports is obviously a bigger portion of the culture. And um, through some personal relationships and friends, got to know some basketball players and, um, and have a friend who had started a sports agency. And as we were talking about it, and I was telling him about our thesis at Builders of taking tech to revel that, you know, this the sports representation business is probably broken to a certain extent as well. And that um, these players, which are the pinnacle athletes, you know, they're at the top of their game. They do what they do. They do it really well. But the rest, you hear about these folks who go bankrupt because they didn't know how to manage their money or they had someone steal their money, whatever it may be. Um, that there was an opportunity to use both tech and our understanding of investment to help these players on the portion that they weren't doing well, which was managing their money or managing their contracts and, and opening them to exposing them to opportunities that we had. So one of the fundamentals at FSM is 
you know, we have access to these investments. We have access to different types of deals and different things that we can help them use their, um, what we call FSM legacy, use their legacy to impart both economic gain, philanthropic gain, and then a legacy for them and their families um, through all the efforts that they want to pursue. So we build an infrastructure for them to do that on those three fronts. And that's resonated with, you'd be surprised, I mean, how many players we talk to who they go, you know what, if I knew how to do philanthropy, I would do it. I want to help the community I came from. I want to help people with certain illnesses or certain conditions or whatever. I just don't know how to do it. And so we set up the infrastructure for them to be successful, both um, from, from, for themselves financially, but also for their other endeavors that they have interests in, whether it's foundations, philanthropy, investments, all of these other things that go into being a well-rounded athlete. So I saw a lot of athletes when I was a pro athlete, they lost everything. Like they were broke, like you said. And I think there was a number I heard at one point, I don't know if you have it, um, but there's a number at one point, uh, there was like 97% of NFL players are broke or divorced within three years of finishing the sport and NBA was less because they got paid more in their contracts. I think were were guaranteed and they had, they had less uh, athletes on a team and they got paid more. What's your thought on that? And do you think that's going to shift in the future at all uh, where that market goes? Definitely maybe with COVID and what's going on. No, that's exactly it. I don't know the specific stat for the NFL, for the NBA. It is a little lower for the reasons that you said, guaranteed contracts, larger contracts, et cetera. But that, that is the, the origin story, the genesis of FSM, was that frustration seeing these really high-performing athletes get you know, taken because they couldn't manage that other part. I mean, you hear lots of stories of folks, of um, athletes who are venture capitalists and, and doing really well. I mean, that's not to say that that's everybody. There's lots of folks who, who are very um, plugged in, who have the resources to do that kind of stuff. But... There is a large segment that that's just not their focus. And so that's what this was about, was establishing a platform that allowed these folks to have the infrastructure to succeed and not get trapped in that story that we hear all the time. And it's been doing really well, and it's working really well for, for the folks that are on our roster. How many athletes do you guys represent now? Seven. That's awesome. What um for for legacy? I think that's huge. I'd love to know yours. Like you know, I always ask people too. Like, what do you want on your tombstone? Like, what at the end of the day, what is your legacy? Obviously, you help a lot of people, and and that's why we built this this podcast. I did a TED Talk a couple of years ago, and I actually got to name my TED Talk. Um, and then coming out with the Significant Breed Success book because I find in America a lot of people are taught get good grades, go to a great college. Obviously you did that. Um, go make a lot of money. Obviously you probably do that too, but I find that every single one of your projects or every single one of your companies or your, your life is built around um, a bigger purpose that, and, and it's really to, you know, solve the problem and serve people. How did, um, like, what is your legacy? Have you defined that or, or what you want on your tombstone one day, which hopefully won't come for a very long time? <laughs> Yeah, um, I would say that I, you know, when I was early on in college and, and answering that question for myself, I sort of sat down and, and in my head made a little manifesto of how did I want to spend my life kind of thing. And so 
I'd say I split, I'm, I've tried to split or I am trying to split my life into three segments. The first segment was doing what I'm doing now, which was developing, working, fixing, helping people, doing all the things that I do, both um, on a personal level to, to improve myself and, and uh, satisfy that internal curiosity I have. I like to do those kinds of things. I like to build companies. I like to invest in companies, do things that I enjoy to make, try to make a difference and make things better. I, I think about three or four years ago, like I said, I have an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old, that sort of driving North, North Star change to show those kids to do the same thing, you know, to be good humans, to do better for the world and do those kinds of things. And Lots of ways to do that, whether it's make money and donate it, whether it's to help with philanthropy, whether it's to volunteer. And so we try to expose them to all of those things and do all of those things. So that I think the second sort of portion here, while they're young, is to provide a North Star for them to understand, be good humans and do that. And then I think the latter half, which I don't think I'm at, but I'd like to get to is become that mentor for others. And, you know, I do mentor now and help people, but... I always found it a little arrogant that I felt that I could be a mentor to some of these folks when, like, what you know, I haven't finished doing what I want to do or what I'm supposed to do. So, But I think as I get older and, and some of these things mature um, and have been around the block enough times with some of these things, I think I, that's where I'd like to dedicate most of my time is to mentorship to help others do kind of what I've wanted to do or what I've done once it's beyond just my kids. I love that. Um... I'd love to ask one more question because you brought up your kids and I find that so many people in your position uh, take a lot of time in the work world. Um, and you talk a lot about your kids right now about how you want to make amazing humans. What are a couple of the tips out there for, you know, execs, CEOs, entrepreneurs that are, you know, maybe coming up. So it's this mentorship side of it. That you just talked about what are a couple of pieces of advice on how to raise good children and, or maybe, you know, you're, you know, what have you done with you and your wife, for instance, to be able to really impact each other or them? What, what's worked for you? Yeah, I'd say the, and I'm not, I don't want to claim that I do this well. So uh, time management is a big thing, obviously, right? And so one thing, and my wife and I talk about this all the time, is that one thing I think I've established as a skill set for myself early on was the ability to multitask. I mean, I have a lot of things going on. Uh, but I'm able to compartmentalize those and work on those in an efficient way, moving the balls forward. If if that's not you, don't try to be someone you're not. Like realize what your strengths are, realize where you have aptitude and how you operate. A lot of the partners I have on my venture stuff are not good multitasking. I mean, we've established that they they're working on the one thing and they're happy with that. So realize your limitations is I think uh, one of the things that's important. Um, second is be present, uh, when, I, when they were babies and growing up and, you know, I tried to be somewhat prolific in reading about child development and child education and understand how their brains work, both from a medical and from a socioeconomic kind of, uh, perspective and being present, especially I have two daughters, daughters, father figure. And for daughters, a huge, huge thing is, I, I mean, I go to every single event, make it happen. I use technology kind of like we do at Builders to techify my life, to make sure that I'm efficient, both using email, SMS, phone, Slack, whatever it may be, that I can, uh, I spend very little time on the phone. I spend a lot of time on the electronics, making things, moving things, so I can be present for them now. Again, I, as I said, I'm not claiming 100%. Sometimes 
I do get that evil look that, why are you on the phone at the dinner table? Oh, just one thing. I just got to finish this one thing. It's always one thing. And so I, I'm trying to work on making myself better doing that. We have a, a rule now that we keep our phones in another room at dinner time, and that's working well. But um, it, it's truly trying to be efficient and being present. So those are the two kind of things that I realized that helped us be successful with our kids, I think. That's amazing. Do you, do, and, and I love it. I love it because – that that's been I, I'm I I just asked my girl to marry me so she's my fiance now but yeah, we have thanks we have a, a a kid coming a boy in November and it's amazing she's in the same uh, world as I am she has an education company and and it's awesome to be able to see how we are able to um, have different viewpoints from different po- different things but coming together and spending quality time and having uh you know being very present is huge so i love what you just said is there one piece of advice for what men or women could do with their significant other like what would you say about that um it's funny i so my wife and i got married after six months uh i like to say that i i'm definitive you know (laughs) but it and decisive but i it wasn't so much that I, i'm so decisive or she's so decisive i think we realized after that you know we were compatible we loved each other but that we're we are going to evolve as a couple and 20 years later now you know we've had lots of ups and downs and all that but we've evolved together we don't let any single event blow up to the point where it's catastrophic we work through problems together um at the same rate you know she doesn't participate in a lot of the things that I do, just they're not of interest to her. So we've found, you know, she's a real estate agent. We've, real estate is something that I do a lot of. So we found commonality in what we do. And so we have discussions and commonality about the things that interest her. And then she doesn't prevent me from doing the things that interest or excite me. And I don't prevent her from doing the interesting things that excite her. So our Venn diagram overlaps in the middle. And we have interests that are common in the middle. But then we also have these circles of, spheres of ink of uh, interest that are apart so that's a i think there's a healthy balance there in that um we're doing we're both doing the things that we like but we find commonality awesome wow i love the wisdom thank you <laughs> um so so very last question what is one thing if you uh that you don't have today that if you had it you would be able to make more impact solve a problem um what would it be? <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, I, it, it, I think it's just it's experience and wisdom, I think, are the things that I'm trying to develop and get. And, that, and that's the biggest challenge. So from a tool set perspective, I mean, I have access, um, you know, influence, money, all of those things uh, I've worked towards and have and, and feel that I'm effective in doing the things that I want to do. It's experience and wisdom that is, is lacking in, in new projects. So it's not that it's not attainable. You know, we go into a new company or start a new project. I spend a good amount of time reading, investigating, talking, learning to really educate myself on something. And, you know, my kids laugh at me. I try to make them do things. Like the other day, I mean, I bought a car and I wanted to paint the calipers ready. You know, jacked the car up, took the tires off, painted everything, put new rims on it, put it on myself. And they're like... You know, there's people who do this. And I said to them, yeah, I mean, obviously there are people who can do everything, but you guys got to focus on, on learning new things and then accomplishing them. There's a, there's a sense of accomplishment. And, you know, they kind of say, oh, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to take a tire off a car. I said, well, that's why you learn. I mean, 
in today's age, we have lots of resources, internet, books, YouTube, whatever, that you can figure stuff out. And, and that, I'm seeing them starting to do that. So wisdom, experience, two things that, you know, come with time is what's missing. But, and I'm working hard on getting those things. I love it. Well, I, I appreciate you, uh, Emmett, for coming on today. Thank you for your wisdom. Thanks for um, spending 40 minutes with me. I really appreciate it. Um, you guys, down below, uh, I, I'm going to have a couple different links to his profiles, LinkedIn, a couple of his companies. Really love what you're doing. Um, anything else you want to plug, what you guys got coming up? Uh, any big projects? Um, no, no, no plugs. Um, do visit the websites. There's some stuff of interest. Uh, I'm available on LinkedIn, Instagram. Like if you have, I love interacting with people and learning from others. So feel free to reach out if you have questions. If you're an entrepreneur starting a company, feel free to send me a deck. You know, I'm happy to help uh, as much as we can. Um, we participate in many, many things. And so have a sphere of influence that you know, can't help. And, I, and I'm a big believer in karma. So and paying it forward. So um, happy to interact with anyone on your platform who who's seeking help. I appreciate it. You guys significance breed success down below. Check out what Amit's doing. He, you can see the advice you see not only in personal, but professional. And, and so what he's doing is, is revolutionizing the world. And, and I love your purpose and the significance you're doing. You guys every single week on Tuesday, uh, we're putting out a new significance breed success podcast. So join us, uh, go to danielp.com or any of the platforms we have. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.